To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here age relives fond memories of the past. And here youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. That was Walt Disney dedicating Disneyland in Anaheim, California in 1955. In the 65 years since that speech, Disney theme parks have opened in Orlando, Tokyo, Paris, Hong Kong, and in 2016, Shanghai. As you can imagine, these parks are a big business. In 2018, they brought in over $20 billion and 157 million guests. To look after all those visitors, Disney employs 130,000 people in those six cities. That's 86% of Disney's total workforce just for these parks. One of those employees was Melissa Berry, who started her work as the executive creative producer of Tomorrowland in Shanghai Disney Resort in 2009, two years before the groundbreaking on the park. She lived and worked in China for eight years after that. Tomorrowland is a staple of Disney theme parks. It's a place to showcase what the world could look like in the future. But how do you try to predict the future in a country that's developed as quickly as China has? From the USA-US China Institute, this is China Life, the podcast sharing the stories of people living and working in China. I'm your host, Craig Stewart. Had you ever been to China before your experience with Disney? No. Do you think you had, you know, preconceived notions of what it would be like? You realize, like, in some ways, how narrow my view is. I hadn't really spent that much time thinking much about it, you know, even Asia at, at all. So I probably had, you know, as a storyteller and a person with, you know, a kind of bent towards that, I had probably, if anything, had sort of a romantic sort of that orientalist, you know, that's horrible worldview mm-hmm. that kind of goes back to, you know, more of that kind of a British colonial, you know, Silk Road, like conquer the world kind of romance completely stuck in a previous century. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so if anything, I came into it with probably an, uh, like an overly romanticized view, which is really interesting because that like, you know, modern day China, as you know, from going there, like completely shatters that technologically savvy and so like forward thinking and, you know, the pragmatism of the culture was so intriguing to me. And I have to say that I found that I really loved that. It was kind of like this pragmatic optimism is what I sort of started to Mm. call it. The Tomorrowland in Disneyland in Anaheim, California, you know, it has this plaque that I'm sure you have memorized. Tomorrow offers (laughs) new frontiers in science, adventure, and ideals. And that was kind of Walt Disney's, you know, this was the land to showcase what the world might be like in the future. I think at the time it was like 1986, like was, was what the world would be like, which, you know, has come and gone and is nothing like Tomorrowland. Um, So when you're building, you know, a place that is supposed to represent the future while we're kind of living in that future in a very futuristic city like, Shanghai. I don't know where do you where do you even begin? I worked on the project for over eight years, so 
to think about the trajectory from the beginning and the way we kind of launched into it to where we landed is also so fascinating. And, you know, you would need like oodles of hours to go through the whole thing. So as we began, there was a lot of conversation um, amongst the team mostly starting, you know, in California at the offices in Glendale, which I think is really important, right, to know, because it's, it's, it was always kind of interesting to me that we're building a theme park that's going to be for Chinese people in China. But we originated the design in Los Angeles, California, you know, so there's, there was always a little bit of, uh, in my own head, and then clearly, as we started to delve in, this recognition that, there's this, you know, cultural canyon between us that we needed to bridge. And we weren't as conscious of that in the beginning. Um, so there's the cultural issue. And then there's like, like you said, how do you build basically a castle park, as we call them, the classic Disneyland park in a country where they have no relationship to Disney, really very little historical relationship. So we kind of started there. We started with this idea of, are we going to come up with new stories, new attractions, new rides? You know, how do we want to approach this? And I think, I don't know if you've read the Bob Iger's on opening day when he said the classic line that Disney, uh, Shanghai Disneyland is going to be authentically Disney and distinctly Chinese. Mm-hmm. So we, we came up with that term and it was interesting. I was on the team that started to work the terminology at the very early, you know, our vision and mission statement and we really came back to saying we do want to stick with sort of the Disney core stories, but how can we make sure that they're infused with familiarity or distinction? How do you figure out what is going to work with this new audience? We did a lot of market research and, the, and we posed a lot of questions in the beginning about, you know, trying to really ascertain the level of um, exposure to characters. Disney had penetrated China before this park. There's no question. There'd been some actually even Mickey Mickey Mouse cartoons that had played in some of the year, early years there, which is super surprising to me. So there had been even some historical exposure. Fair amount of the movies had made it through, you know, the censorship process and had been shown. And then Disney English was also really big in the country when we arrived, which means there was a whole sort of preschool level of students who, you know, been exposed to learning English through Disney characters. So there was a base level of Disney there. And then we, you know, we kind of probed the question back and forth, like how, you know, how much do we want to change? For instance, there is no Frontierland in this park. That was a big decision that got made early on, because when we really started asking people, we really got down to questions like about like style of architecture, you know, like you know, we would show people pictures, you know, classic market research. I mean, that happened all across the country. A very early recognition was Frontierland has no penetration, you know, like the Old West is really a specifically American nostalgia. So, all right, that was so we we realized, yeah, that there's no reason to put a Frontierland specific to Tomorrowland. This Tomorrowland does not have a Space Mountain. Um, has a Tron light cycle power run. First of all, we realized Space Mountain, no historical reference there. Nobody's going to care whether it's in the park or not in the park there, right? Where you here in the States, people would, you know, raise holy hell. So there was a certain amount of liberation to some of our choices because we realized, oh, we don't have the Disney fan base in China. We're building a Disney fan base. And also we, f- we thought that Tron in some ways was a better fit 
for the kind of rapid acceleration of technology and the technology story, um, we were very conscious in Tomorrowland of the fact that we were building a land. And so we, we really recrafted the entire story, really. Um, we did not set it in a specific time and place. We kind of thought of Tomorrowland as a palette. It's designed with harmony with nature as being its underlying theme. So the architecture, the building materials, everything was really based on this kind of um, circular spiral um, organic design motif. But the land itself is essentially a, a huge artistic palette for an ever-evolving, ever-changing series of events. Things were changing in that park all the way up to six months before we opened. And a lot of it because we were learning things as we were going. I mean, it, it was a super steep learning curve. There were some very harsh awakenings um, that are pretty public about building that park. We opened very far behind schedule and very over budget. Um, and I think in large part, I would say that was driven by cultural clashes. How do you then make the park, you know, distinctly Chinese? All of the guest amenities are Chinese. So all of the food, primarily, there are some things that are, you know, classic Disney, like churros and oh, turkey eggs. <laughs> but primarily all the food there is Chinese. Of course, all of the people who work in the park are Chinese. There is a classic, authentic Chinese tea house that was built with all, uh, you know, the classic Chinese design, Chinese workers, Chinese materials. It was interesting, the choices, and I'll say this as a designer, but a lot of the choices made at the ground level were made to reflect Chinese motifs using Chinese materials, using the classic building traditions. You know, they, they may seem obvious, but at the same time, those are not things we would be doing in other parks. You know, these are very specific decisions that got made on a much bigger scale in this park than in other parks. We realized, too, as we were building, that the pride that the Chinese have and the pride that they were feeling and, you know, with the government as our partner, they would drive us, our partnership would drive us to say, well, we want to make sure the castle is the biggest and the tallest. And this is a little off book, but I think it's okay to say because I think that pride is something that I think is, is really a good thing. They, as a country, really want to feel like they have things to offer their population. I mean, that's the way that I sort of felt like it, it felt to me living there was, yeah, they want the biggest, tallest castle because, you know, they want to be building this park so that the people that are being, you know, rapidly brought into the middle class in China can feel proud when they go to the park that they have something that's, you know, really like world class and the best. I mean, some of those words would come up. You know, what was it like dealing with the Chinese government in, you know, completing this project? The negotiations in the beginning, um, as you can imagine, so, th you know, as things sort of started very high level and very much in conference rooms before we got to the real building design and building piece of it, we were in a very formal, very culturally formal settings with going to a conference room and you've got the government on one side and we're on the other side and just how does one interact and all of those sort of cultural cues a lot of back and forth and follow-up. I think that was a little surprising to me. Of, I mean, there were points where the, the negotiations were very tenuous in the beginning, right? So, And I very much felt like 
oh my gosh, I might be getting in the middle of something here, or I might say something, or I might do something that would could screw up an entire, you know, <laughs> three and a half <laughs> billion. Scrap the whole project. project. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because there was there, I have to say, and this is, you know, I, I'm trying to think of ways to say this that don't. I don't think I'm under any NDA anymore, which is really interesting. But, you know, there were people that I would be sitting across from who were probably in line to secede in the Chinese government. You know, I mean, these were high level communist officials and they were being tasked with getting making sure that this park happened. I mean, everyone was at the table with the similar reasons. We all wanted the same thing, but it would it got there were times when it got pretty tense. So that was very intriguing to me to be party and privy to that. But once we transferred really the focus of our efforts to Shanghai and the Shendi group was essentially the construction arm of the government that was our partners on site every day. Once you get into that day to day, again, I think the biggest challenge, and I, we haven't really hit on this yet, but you know, there's this huge schism in that country when we were there, and I'm sure it still exists, which is you've got first world technology in terms of cell phone and some infrastructure that the government's pushing. And you've got these massive construction companies, which also do business around the world, who have lots of resources and lots of massive big equipment. But you've got a construction workforce that's untrained, unskilled, young, doesn't know what the hell they're doing, is basically, you know, working with, you know, rudimentary tools at the ground level. So, and and I think it's a, it's a, it's fair to say that that's kind of a metaphor for what's going on in the whole country, which is there's an educated, rapidly accelerating technology workforce. And then there's a host of the majority of people that are definitely being kind of, I don't want to say left behind, because I know that that's, I, I'm not in a position to make that statement, but that was on a day-to-day level, that was probably my biggest challenge was, is this even possible that we can build this park with the skill of the workforce we have? Your concern was at that level at that time of like, you know, can we even do this? Yeah. I mean, I have to say that I, you know, I was primarily focused on the storytelling and the show set design and the media design and all the things that go in the buildings. But, you know, you can't put that stuff in a building until you have a building to put it in. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I was out there on the job site, you know, like with the construction crew and the construction foreman all the time, pushing, pushing, pushing. So, yeah, I I think it's fair to say, but I think that that's also something that you hear, you know, that's not news, right? This fact that the urban workforce is primarily made up of unskilled people, young people, primarily coming in from rural villages. You know, I definitely saw that every day. Going back to your government talks, I don't know how much you can divulge, but you mentioned there were some very <laughs> tense moments. What were some of the issues that, you know, both sides, you know, Disney and the government were so tense about? I think really the biggest sticking point in the beginning was money. They were super shrewd about the dollar investment that they wanted to make because the government is the primary stakeholder and that money has to get approved by all sorts of different, like, you know, the Shanghai City Council or whatever it's called. The city of Shanghai is involved and the government of China, you know, all the investment levels. So there was some major pushback around money. A lot of pushback around the land itself, too. I mean, a lot of discussion about who got to control certain pieces of the property. Mm. Um, again, that's that's definitely not public knowledge. 
what's really interesting, and this is probably getting in the weeds, but construction contracts, you know, the government controls, you know, all of those things. Um, so the construction bidding process was very contentious, very challenging, and then continued to be all the way through. And I think in some ways we saw both the power of the government and we saw how ineffectual the government could be. And that was, that, that was really interesting to me. I think that's the piece where I was super fascinated the whole time I was there, which was the savviness of the way people there, you know, certainly people that were in a position to have a certain amount of resources, but how they were able to do workarounds around the government. That I love that part. That was really <laughs> intriguing. So, you know, the construction companies would figure out ways, even though they were mandated by the government to hold to certain things. Mm-hmm. It was it was really interesting to see the way they negotiated around that. And then often like just had us like, you know, in a vice grip. And then and I always thought that was like, hey, to their credit, you know. Working on this project, what do you think you just learned about, I don't know, yourself, you know, being in China? I have to say that it, it that it factors into my life on a daily basis. I mean, some some things that, that were kind of purely pragmatic, but also deeply spiritual. I feel like I... Um, became a much, I, I deepened my own spirituality living there. I deepened my connection to the earth. You know, I used, so so this is going to be weird, but it's kind of shows you that sort of interesting uh, kind of dichotomy, but that comes together there. So we all use WeChat, you know, it's our team, the minute you arrive in China, if you're not on WeChat, you know, you're going to, you're going to regret it. So we were all very, super connected via WeChat and I just, pretty much started to use it for everything in my daily life. And so I found an organic farm office that was next door to where I lived. I lived in Lujazwe on the Pudong side. And uh, anyway, so I got connected up with them and then realized they were connected to this organic farm that was out in the um, towards the airport. So I was getting a weekly CSA basket of organic produce produced in China in, you know, in the most polluted, one of the most polluted countries in the world. Um, you know, I didn't have the soil tested or anything, but I went to the farm. I saw I saw the way they were farming. Um, it was delivered to my door into my refrigerator <laughs> because of WeChat. Wow. Um, seven, you know, like, and I could get organic produce and other things delivered to my house seven days a week, almost 24 hours a day um, via a bike messenger. Um, so, so I found that it was, it, it kind of changed my relationship to sustainability and using, you know, like, I think it was my like launching into like the idea of how technology can be like, you know, really help radically change people's lives. Um, And then I think the other thing was just my friendships with my Chinese colleagues. I mean, I, you know, I formed friendships for a lifetime. I spent time in people's homes. I, you know, met their grandparents, I helped make food, I felt like that community, that cultural community there is something that I came away with saying, like, that's, that's something I want to incorporate into my life in a, in, a, in a much more active way. You saying this brings me back to that Tomorrowland plaque at Disneyland, that tomorrow offers new frontiers in science, adventure, and ideals. 
And mm-hmm. that ideals was always a, a weird thing to me because science and adventure kind of makes sense. You know, you've got Space Mountain, you've got all this, you know, new technology, Tomorrowland. But the ideals was like, what are the ideals of tomorrow? Yeah. And you going to, you know, to Shanghai and, you know, building this land, you yeah. kind of being there found this new kind of futuristic ideal for yourself, for the world in a way. Absolutely. And I think that was, I mean, that was our ethos was this kind of a harmony with nature and then building community through community. That was kind of the ethos that we, and, and honest, and it is interesting. I mean, for all of the, the myriad of challenges and issues, you know, from the top down in China, um, I do think that there is that, that underlying core of that 5,000-year-old culture that you can see manifested there on a daily basis is something that we can learn from a lot. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, uh, yeah, to your point, I, like, I hate to ripple this out too widely, but at the same time, I really do feel like when I came home immediately to the, you know, election of Donald Trump and the countrywide level of anxiety that I feel here partly, you know, obviously because I am a citizen here and so I'm, you know, more closely associated with, um, you know, what's happening. But I also think that, you know, it's it's exposed these kinds of um, challenges that we have in our own culture of maintaining that underlying ethos. But then also just the fascination and the admiration and the respect that grew within me for that culture. I've left Disney since then mm-hmm. um, and have moved to Oregon and am uh, kind of I'm partnering up with a sheep ranch here, an 80-acre sheep ranch. But a part of what I've moved forward to do is influenced by my time in learning in China, a, a large part of it. The kind of um, closeness to the land, the respect for seasons and cycles, uh, the relationship they have with their food, the relationship they have with their culture – All of those things were deeply meaningful to me when I was living there. China Life is a production of the USC U.S. China Institute. If you haven't yet, subscribe to China Life wherever you listen to podcasts to get all of our shows downloaded onto your listening device automatically. While you're there, leave us a review. It really helps other people find out about the show. To learn more about the USC US China Institute and browse our vast collection of resources, such as historical and contemporary documents, China based events around the US, author interviews, seminars for educators, and much more, visit our website at china.usc.edu. I'm Craig Stubing, and this is China Life.